Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Tuesday, October 27th. A COVID study out of the University of Guelph has confirmed the first positive case involving a dog in Canada. So we'll get details from its lead researcher and discuss what you need to know as a pet owner during this pandemic. Alan Cross joins us. He'll talk about Spotify and the challenges for musicians in this age of streaming. But first, we've been uh, having a situation during this pandemic where restaurants have been struggling to stay alive, basically, um, by offering takeout. Because for the longest time, you couldn't go in and eat. And now we're back into that 28-day situation where you can't go in and eat at local restaurants. So people are encouraged to do takeout. Well, these takeout apps that you use, uh, these food delivery apps that you use on a daily basis, they're... um, commission to the restaurants for the privilege of using this service is outstandingly high. In some cases, it's about 30%. And so uh, Doug Ford was asked about it. And he said, listen, I don't give a lot of warnings, but this is your second warning. And then the hammer comes down. And there is a longer clip where Doug, and I'll just paraphrase what Doug Ford says in that longer clip. He goes on to talk about how Um, you know, we're all in this together and we all have to lend a hand. If you could during this pandemic, do your part and make things easier. Don't gouge the restaurants that actually keep you in business, help them out, lower your commission. And so he's waiting for something to happen. Now, Councillor Mike Ford from Etobicoke North knows that things are dire, especially with this 28 day shutdown that we're in the middle of a modified stage two where you can't eat in restaurants. He's going to be introducing a motion for the city to call for the province to implement a similar limit on commission fees uh, that Skip the Dishes, I think, has announced earlier this month. Here to talk about it, Councillor Mike Ford. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good morning, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So I think this is an important thing because when we use these apps, we think we're supporting restaurants. But at the end of uh, the situation, when you look at the bill uh, and as far as how much uh, commission fees restaurants are charged, they're not really making anything on this. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct, Kelly. Look, I want to start off by saying, you know, many, many people in the city, including myself, have used these apps to, uh, you know, try and support businesses. But yes, as you've said, when you when you kind of dive into it, it, it's when you look at it, the, the restaurants are being hit with heavy commission fees. Um, and, and as you said in the introduction, was up to 30 percent. And, and quite simply, it's just unviable to do so. These these big companies have a monopoly on on the market right now, and and we're just asking them to to roll up their sleeves a bit, take a better look at their commission rates, and and, and try and work with all of us to uh, help out the restaurants. And the city of Toronto doesn't have the authority to make the calls on lowering commission fees. That has to be up to the province. Yeah, that's correct. So, so I've been speaking with small businesses, uh, particularly in North Etobicoke, but across the business or across sorry, across the city, and um, I've heard kind of loud and clear, unanimously, that these are uh, a big issue for them because currently, um, when they can't have people dining in, uh, this has become their uh, you know vast majority of business coming into their restaurants are through these apps. Um, so I, I dove into it with our, our city legal staff, uh, our municipal licensing and standards staff, um, and, and they did say we don't have the regulatory authority, but of course uh, the provincial government does, so that's why we're tabling the motion today through City Council to ask the province of Ontario uh, to temporarily cap these commissions. 
And judging by how uh, the mayor feels, I'm guessing that other counselors like yourself feel that this will pass. Uh, I do. Um, look, uh, the mayor's been very supportive on this. And, and look, the mayor's been out in front. So is the premier, as as you just played at the beginning of the show. Uh, both the premier and the mayor have been out in front of this issue. They've been calling on these companies to uh, kind of br- bring back their commission fees and, um, and and try and help these small businesses out. Because, look, uh, 80% of Toronto's economy is founded on small businesses and restaurants such as this, uh, such as these small mom-pop shops. And uh, if they go under, it doesn't help any of us, and it will make the recovery of COVID-19 that much more harder. Well, and if they go under, I mean, it doesn't help the uh, food delivery apps because they have no one's food to deliver. So Skip the Dishes and Uber Eats, have you been talking to them directly? And what do they say about lowering commissions? Yeah, I, um, you know, I've had conversations with the industry. Um, I I won't, uh, I don't want to name specific company names, but uh, uh, the biggest players in the industries I've had the conversations with. Um, I, I think they have shared their sentiment that they're doing everything they can. Um, you know, I, I, I may question that uh, a little bit. Um, I think they do need to step up uh, more so because when you're looking at 30% commission fees, um, that, that's, that's, it's, it, it's crazy if you look at it because um, when you look at the margins these restaurants bring in, um, you know, 30% is really bringing them to razor thin margins and actually even operating on a loss. So what are you hoping that the province will cap the commission fees at for these uh, food delivery third party apps? Well, I think that's a, a great question. And, and I don't have a specific number. I've looked into other jurisdictions around North America, uh, such as New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. Um, a whole number of uh, places in the U.S. have put them in at 15%. Look, um, you know, we differ from the U.S. in a number of ways. You know, the markets are different, whatnot. I, I'm not going to say 15% is the number, but I think we do need to find a fair balance uh, bet- between where the restaurants can keep their heads above water um, and, you know, the, the, the companies, these companies make a profit. But um, there has to be a balance there. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time and uh, let us know how the motion goes, will you? We will. All right. All right. Thank Thanks. You That's Councillor Mike Ford. He's from Etobicoke North introducing a motion at City Council today to call on the province to implement a similar limit on commission fees. And I I would say judging by uh, how the city feels and how the mayor's been speaking lately, uh, we're going to see a support for the small businessman, uh, that being our restaurateurs. And we're going to see those uh, that motion passing and, and Doug Ford moving on that to implement some sort of cap on commission fees soon enough. In the meantime, though, I should mention uh, this is an interesting th- thing, Chris. I don't know if you heard about it, but we had talked about the Open for Business program back in May. And it was a program put together by the city. And I think this is to help businesses. And it wasn't just about food delivery and, and the likes, but to help them um, get online and and get Um, their technology working for them. A a lot of people we've discovered small independent businesses didn't even have a web presence and you couldn't buy things online from them, which was shocking, but they'd been doing enough with the the traffic in the city that they could survive. Well, um, they are extending this to uh, something called Ritual Mobile, which is offering a tool for pickup. It's called Ritual One. 
And restaurants can now access delivery service through DoorDash Drive, where businesses are charged a flat rate rather than a percentage for each order. And see, the problem with this uh, third-party app uh, causing, you know, charging huge commissions is they're going to run into this situation. Like, you might be the only game in town right now, but you just wait until cities and businesses band together and they say, you know what, forget it. It's, we need to keep our economy humming along. We need to make sure that these restaurants survive. So we're going to encourage our customers to order directly from local businesses. And we are going to skip your commission uh, service. We're going to pay upfront a flat rate on a monthly basis or a flat rate for delivery. And that's it. We'll do it ourselves. And we're kind of getting there. So it is interesting because... Um, a spokesperson for Ritual and DoorDash said that fa- fees are going to be waived for restaurants and for delivery for the first two weeks. And I think that starts on Monday, goes right through to November the 8th. So there's something to be aware of. There's other options for you out there to support local restaurants. This is some interesting news. A dog in Ontario's Niagara region has become the first dog in Canada to test positive for COVID-19. And we'd like to welcome onto the show Scott Weiss. He's Chief of Infection Control at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinarian College, where they're currently studying animals to find out if they can um, indeed contract uh, COVID-19. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. So I talked about this earlier on with a vet um, at the beginning of the pandemic when we saw dogs walking around China wearing masks. And um, the theory was that dogs are not as susceptible to COVID-19 as cats are. Where do we sit with that now? Well, I think we're still there. We know that this virus can infect a few different animal species, and dogs are one of them, but they don't seem to be as susceptible to cats, certainly not as susceptible to us. And while they can get infected, they don't seem to suffer any or many consequences of it. They don't tend to get sick. It's debatable whether they really get sick or not, but they can get infected. They can have the virus in them. And that's what we found with this dog. Okay, you're currently conducting a study to find out if pets are infected. How do you go about finding a pet to test? Well, for this study, we're looking at pets owned by people with active COVID infections. So logistically, it's a bit of a challenge, but we identify people that have COVID, usually by them contacting us. And then we go into the household and we sample whatever pets are there. And we sample, and similar to it's done in people, we get a swab from their nose, not going all the way back like they do in people, just because we can't do that as easily in a, in a household with a dog or a cat. But we get one from the nose, one from their mouth, and one from their bum. And then we test it using a similar approach to what's done in people for the presence of the virus. So you tested this particular dog that was positive for COVID. Were they showing any signs? You know, she was healthy, and that's what we expect with dogs. Like I said, we don't really know if they get sick or not, and, and most often, if not always, they don't. So she was perfectly healthy when we sampled her, and she was perfectly healthy after that. At the beginning of this pandemic, uh, I remember there was talk about your pets possibly not necessarily uh, passing on COVID-19 to you, but um, through them getting sick and then you contracting it but through other people touching them that could be infected and then they would be a vector. Where are we at with that now? Because I have really uh, allowed, you know, I've loosened my reins on my dog and allowed other people to pat the dog now. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable. The risk of doing that is bringing you close to the person, really, not necessarily from touching the dog. And we were more concerned at the start because we really didn't know. And I think what we know now about surfaces in general, whether it's a dog's hair coat or a doorknob, they don't seem to be playing a significant role in transmission. This virus doesn't like it when it gets outside of a toast. 
So once it leaves the body, it, it doesn't survive very long. It's not there at high levels, and it's probably not a major role for infection. So I'm much less concerned about the animal's hair coat than we were at the start because we really didn't know anything about it. So I'm worried about you know getting it from people. And maybe from animals, like I said, dogs are very low risk for that. Um, cats are probably, cats are a more theoretical risk that an infected cat, if it gets outside of the house, could infect someone else. But a lot of common sense things can, can take animals out of the equation. And basically, if you're infected and your dog doesn't leave the house, your cat doesn't leave the house while you're in your quarantine period, then the risks are pretty much negligible. If if there is a risk of passing it on to your dog, like you found this dog in Niagara region that obviously got it from their owners because four of the six people in the household, I believe, were sick. They contracted COVID and one of the dogs had uh, contracted COVID. What can you do to keep your pets safe or should you even be focusing on that? Should you be avoiding touching them? What do you say? Well, I think it's the approach is, you know, they're, they're part of the family and let's treat them that way when it comes to COVID. So if you're sick and so if you have COVID and you're trying to stay away from other people in the household, stay away from the animal too. Because what we don't want you to do is have, you know, persons infected, living in the basement, doing a really good job, staying away from everyone else. But then the cat comes up, down, and goes back and forth between them. We'd rather the cat and the dog stay with one or the other. So if you've exposed your animal and you think they might be infected or your whole household is being isolated, then we recommend keeping the animal inside with you or just, you know, dog just goes outside and a leash to pee, but it doesn't encounter other people and other animals. And if you're separating yourself from the rest of the household because you've been exposed or you're sick, then the rest of the household includes your dog or your cat. So just try to stay away from them during your isolation period like everyone else. You know, the disclaimer there is some people, animals are their support group, right? So if someone's sick and, and having that animal with them close to them is really important, then I'm not opposed to that because the risk to a dog in particular is quite low. We just have to realize that, you know, if you're, if you're sick and you're spending all your time cuddling with your dog on the couch, that we should consider that dog potentially infected and really keep it away from other people and other animals. We're hearing about people that contract COVID-19 and and the symptoms might not be extreme, but they're long haulers. Is there a potential for a dog to be a long hauler? Well, we don't know. I think it's pretty unlikely. We don't have a lot of testing that's been done on dogs, so we we can't say for sure. But this virus isn't really a dog virus. It originated in animals, but it likes people. And we can consider it a human virus that will occasionally spill over into some animals. So what we know from the little bit of work that's been done with dogs uh, they don't tend to carry it for very long at all. So I, I think the odds of, of a dog being persistently positive or positive for a long period of time are you know, exceptionally low. The University of Guelph and your team, they've tested uh, about 40 dogs and cats for the virus so far. This is your first positive with a dog in COVID-19. How many cats uh, have you come across with your research that are positive? Well, we've, we haven't any true positives. And one of the problems is logistics for us because we have to get into the household when the people are sick. So you've got to get, you know, someone has to get COVID and then they have to go to a testing center and get tested. Then they have to get the result back. And then they have to contact us and we have to get in there. And we need to do that within a pretty short period of time because if you have COVID and you infect your pet, you're probably doing it fairly early in your disease because that's when you tend to shed the most virus. So I think often we've been getting into households too late and we've been missing them. We've got 20, I think, or so cats we've done so far. And we had one that was a borderline positive. We couldn't confirm it was a real one. And I suspect that that was, you know, based on the timing of everything, he was infected and the infection was essentially gone or going away. 
And these, this is why we're looking at animals for antibodies, too, just like you do in people. So we test their blood for antibodies, and if they have antibodies against the virus, it would tell us they were infected in the past. And if we look at some work we have so far and some work from other places, it looks not that uncommon. You know, 20, 30, 40% or even more of cats from positive households will have huh. antibodies against this virus. So I think that we not uncommonly pass it on to some of our pets. And usually it doesn't cause a problem. Sometimes it can. But uh, with dogs, it seems to be pretty innocuous so far. All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, making light of, of what's going on with your study and our, our pets that we share our lives with. Thanks so much, Scott. Have a good day. And I'd like to welcome onto the show uh, one of the people that I respect the most in the industry. I'd like to call him a friend, Alan Cross from the Ongoing History of New Music and a Journal of Musical Things. Alan, good to have you on. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's debatable. I think everybody listening knows that, but I do uh, I do respect you and I really enjoy your company whenever you're on the show and whenever I get the ability to see you live and in person, although the, the pandemic's put the kibosh on this. And Alan, it really has changed everything. There's not an industry untouched by the pandemic, but one of the things that we both love, live music, um, that ecosystem is in complete jeopardy with the pandemic. And so it's leaving musicians dependent on uh, streaming services and the income that they get from these streaming services. So we're hearing about um, uh, the United uh, Musicians and Allied Workers Union that represent artists in the States. They have a new campaign titled Justice at Spotify, which is demanding that the platform you know, raise their average streaming royalty from a ridiculous amount to just a penny per stream for all artists. Can you give us the inside and, and outs of this story? Yeah, there's no doubt that you are not making as much money from streaming as you would from touring or even back in the old days of selling pieces of plastic, unless, of course, you're Justin Bieber or Drake or somebody like that, where you figured out streaming and you're making a lot of money from that. Um, the problem, I understand what they're saying. Um, the Because you don't, you can't compare streaming to sales because it's an apples and oranges situation for a lot of reasons that are, are technical, but we won't get into them here. They're just different fundamentally. One is something that you purchase and own for the rest of your life. The other is some fleeting listen that you, uh, that you pay for uh, each time you listen to something. So when you, when you, Let's get into this. When you sell a record to somebody, you are giving that person the right to listen to that music an infinite number of times for the rest of your life. So you have to pay a premium for that. When you're streaming something, you're giving, you're selling a person the right to listen to that song once. And each time you listen to it, you have to pay again. So there's a different pricing structure. That's, that's but, why we can't, that's why we can't compare you know, apples and oranges, right? Well, one of the things that I've noticed, Alan, and especially in this story, is that I had no idea, but um, in order for an artist to make a single dollar on Spotify, you have to hope that your song is streamed 263 times. And they even went on to break it down even more and said that if you were to earn, um, a, let's say, 15 bucks each month working full time, it would take you 657,000 plus streams per band member to earn that $15 an hour each month working full time. So yeah. these are a lot of artists now that are just putting their faith into this platform that a lot of people have adopted because they're not buying the physical copies and they're just hoping to make a living. But how can they make a living when they're not even making a penny per stream? Well, they should talk to their record labels. 
because the record labels, publishers, and rights holders are the ones that negotiate with the streaming music services for the maximum amount of, of, of money that they can hope to extract from them. Uh, so it's not that Spotify is being you know, mean and miserly. It's that they're paying what they managed to negotiate with the people who are supposed to be acting in the best interest of the artists. Uh, yes, they don't pay out a lot, but really the, the fight should be with the people who negotiate with Spotify to set these rates in the first place. Uh, now, Spotify, I think what they want is Spotify to unilaterally uh, raise how much they pay per stream. But let's also remember that Spotify doesn't, is, not pot of, is not profitable. None, <coughs> none of the streaming music services are profitable. Um, hmm. And that's because of the licensing situation that they've got worked out with the rights holders and copyright holders and record labels. Uh, they have a number of fixed costs. And the higher, the more people listen, the higher those costs go. There is no way for a streaming music service to uh, to scale up so that they have efficiencies and can increase their margins. The more people listen, the more they have to pay, and that goes in lockstep with the amount of money that's coming in. So, so there's a, a fundamental problem right there. It's the way it's structured. The other thing that that artists need to know is that. Um, Record labels are making somewhere over 65% of their revenue from streaming. They take all the money off the top. Uh, one label in the last three months made $250 million just from streaming. Why isn't that money being passed through to the artists? You know, so that's, that's another part of this fight. It's not as simple as saying, that, oh, Spotify's bad, Apple Music's bad, Tidal Music's bad. It's, it's the fundamental financial structure of, of the streaming world that seem to leave the artist out at all levels from the very beginning. Now, that being said, if they can't tour, they can't play gigs, uh, nobody's buying albums anymore, yeah, maybe maybe there are specific needs for artists right now. You've got to you know, give them a little bit more because they're dying. They're, they're really hurting. If, they, if the only way that they can get paid for their music is from a streaming platform, then they're in trouble. Alan, was the original goal of these streaming platforms to allow us to discover artists that we might not otherwise know and uh, allow artists to get to an audience that that might appreciate them? Yeah, but with 65 million songs on each of the streaming platforms, uh, there's a lot of competition, a lot of noise. There's a site called Forgotify. If you have a Spotify account, you can log on to Forgotify. And Forgotify is based on the fact that about 20% of all the songs on Spotify have never been streamed once. So Forgotify will give you a steady stream of music that no one's ever heard before. How bad is it? It, you know, it's not. There's a lot of decent stuff there. Occasionally, you'll come across some some real horrible stuff. But the, the barrier to entry, the ability to upload something to a streaming music service is so easy that anyone can do it. And frankly, there's 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 too much music out there. Back in the day, we had record labels and radio stations and music stores and um, video channels and music magazines really kind of, of, of acting as cultural gatekeepers, only letting so much stuff through. They created an artificial shortage by, by filtering out all the stuff that they didn't think that would make any money or that they didn't think we'd like. Today, that's, those filters are gone. 
So no wonder people are looking at music as a disposable thing. There's just so much out of it. Because, you know, when you go out there and listen to something, there's that nagging feeling in the back of your head that, uh, you know, this is good, but there's got to be more out there that's even better. So mm-hmm. you don't, you know, nobody's, nobody's spending a, a significant amount of time. This is another issue with streaming. Everybody is is spending, the, the heavy streamers are, are, are listening to music that are in the top 100, you know, the top big singles. And they're listening to those songs over and over and over again. So that's why those artists get paid out. But there's 65 million other songs that, that aren't getting any attention at all. And but if that's the case, then the vetting process is alive and well. We still have record companies in charge and record labels in charge of, of what we hear. We do, and it gets... Although there are there are certain things that are they're breaking the mold. TikTok, for example, uh, you know, tell that to Fleetwood Mac, who finally who suddenly has the Rumors album back on the charts after 42 years because of a TikTok video of a guy on longboard drinking uh, drinking cranberry juice. So there's a lot of things that are happening out there organically that we don't really completely understand just yet. Um, but but I, you I, could I, argue if that Fleetwood Mac song wasn't the big hit that originally was, and if the record company hadn't discovered Fleetwood Mac or Fleetwood Mac, you know, hadn't uh, be, ra- risen to popularity, that we might not have uh, glommed on to that video of the guy in the longboard the same way. Well, that that's true. But let's go back to when that album came out in 1977. The music industry was a completely different landscape than it is today. You did have those cultural gatekeepers filtering through music and putting out stuff that they thought would sell. And a lot of it did sell and sold a lot because we could come up with this idea of, of consensus. We all agreed that this was a good album, this was a good band, and we all went out and bought the records because the guy on the radio told us to, because the, the, record, uh, uh, the, uh, the record store racked all this music up front, or the music magazine wrote about it all the time. Today, you know, everybody is their own music director, and as a result, uh, everybody, everybody has a chance to compete in this world but the competition is so stiff that uh, it's even the biggest stars today are not as big as the stars of, of yesterday. So if we really like an artist and we want to support them, should fans be going online and buying some merch? Like, do they make a lot of money off that? Where do we support them? Merch is good and physical product is good. They have high, high margins. And um, even though a lot of these artists will have what's known as a 360 deal, meaning that they have to share in everything uh, they do with their record company um, in exchange for extra promotion from their record company, they make that's where they make their cash. They make it on, on physical product and merch. And if you can do that, that's great. Uh, streaming is too big to go away. Uh, it's going to have to be revamped at some point you know, juncture down the road, because again, as popular as it is, and as much money as it's making for the record labels, there isn't a single streaming music service that is making a profit. They're losing money. And a guy like Daniel Eck, who runs Spotify, is really in it for the long term. The economics of of how he sees things is that things will reach such a, a critical mass that there will be an opportunity for everybody to make more money, including Spotify. Hmm. Well, but, this but sounds right, like... But right now, <laughs> it's not that case. Not the case. Yeah, it sounds like he's gambling on a future that, hey, if COVID has taught us anything, it's not as certain as we'd like to think. Absolutely. Alan, thanks so much for your time. I always appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome.
Cheers. That's Alan Cross from the Ongoing History of New Music and also his uh, blog. I highly recommend it. It's a journal of musical things. Well, that's a wrap for the podcast. Don't forget we broadcast live three hours daily, Monday through Friday from 9 till noon on 640 Toronto.